0: 2 Samuel chapter 14 uh if you didn't bring a bible today how about borrowing one of ours well we have it on the back of the seat in front of you it's going to be on page 224 of our copy of the bible or second samuel 14 in your copy you know when i hear the word bitterness the face that comes to mind up on my screen is a fellow named james tony james tony is a boxer Uh, Several years ago, he won the IBF World Middleweight title by knocking out the defending champion, Michael Noon. Michael Noon was a 20-to-1 favorite, and and Tony destroyed him. In fact, when he was asked about the intensity of the fight in Sports Illustrated, the fact that he was like a, a man possessed, Tony said, and I quote, I fight with my anger. James Tony is an angry man. You say, well, who's he angry at? Well, he's angry at his dad. Listen to what he said. He said, I look at my opponent and I see my dad. So I have to take him out. I have to kill him. I have to do anything I can to get him out of there. Tony's father, you see, was a big violent man. Used to beat his mother up. One time shot his mother in the leg. Then left his mother to raise all the children by himself. And Tony went on to say, I can never forgive him. Why should I? I know where my father is. And I hope he reads this. Because if he ever decides to come out of the woodwork, I will be ready for him, end of quote. Now, friends, bitterness is a potent force in our world. It's not a good force, it's a sinister force. A force that uh, breaks up human relationships, a a force that fractures family. And we want to talk about bitterness today because we're going back to the study of the life of David. And as we do, we're going to find that bitterness entered into the life of one of his children and, and wrecked havoc on his whole family. Friends, bitterness doesn't grow in a vacuum. There are certain things that act like miracle growth for bitterness. And we want to talk about what these things are because some of you have experienced some of these things. And then we want to talk about how do you keep from allowing those things to make you into a bitter person. That's what we want to talk about. Now, a little bit of background, because we haven't done this for a while, so let's make sure we're all together. You remember, David was a shepherd, a a young shepherd boy, and he grew up to become king of Israel. He took Israel and he expanded the borders of Israel to the largest limit that they had ever had. But, at the zenith of his power, he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And yes, God forgave him, but God also informed him there would be some consequences because of what he had done. And one of those consequences was that there would be turmoil constantly in his family until the day he died. Now, that turmoil didn't take long to start. It wasn't long after this that one of his sons, a fellow named Amnon, raped one of his daughters, Amnon's half-sister, a gal named Tamar. And Tamar was so devastated by this that she had what we would call today a nervous breakdown. Her real brother, her full brother, Absalom, waited for two years for David to do something. David did nothing. Finally, Absalom took matters in his own hands and he, he murdered the rapist, his half-brother, Amnon, and then fled into exile for three years. Now, that's where we pick up the story here in chapter 14. So let's look. Verse 1. Now, Joab, who was the commanding general of, jo- of David's armies, Joab knew that the king's heart longed for Absalom. Joab realized David really missed his son Absalom, but that for some reason David couldn't seem to do what it took to get him back. So so Joab devised a very clever plot to get David to make the decision to bring Absalom back. You can read about it in verses 2 to 20. We're not going to read it, but it worked. Verse 21. Verse 21. So the king said to Joab, Very well, I will do it. Go and bring the young man Absalom back. Verse 23. So Joab went. And he brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. But the king said, He, Absalom, must go down to his own house. He must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and did not see the face of the king. You say, now, Lon. why in the world, after the kid's been gone three years, would his dad, when he comes back to town, refuse to see his own son? Don't know. No idea. And I can tell you it's a bad, it was a bad decision, excuse me, it was a bad decision because these two men had some things they needed to work on. They had some issues they needed to deal with. So David said, I just want to talk to him. Well, that went on for another couple of years. Verse 28, and Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. And then Absalom started to get upset, so he called Joab because he wanted to make Joab go to the king and, and have the king let him come see him. Joab wouldn't come see him. Absalom sent for Joab a second time. Joab wouldn't come a second time. So Absalom sent his men out and set Joab's fields on fire. Absalom, came, Absalom called a third time and said, Hey, Joab, I want to see you. Joab showed up. He said, What, are you crazy setting my fields on fire like that? Are you nuts? What's wrong with you? He said, Hey, man. Absalom says, Joab, I called you twice, and all I got was call waiting. You understand? And I didn't like it, and you're going to come see me, and I want to see my father. So Absalom went to see his dad. Verse 33, Joab convinced the king to invite him in. And it says, verse 33, Absalom came in and bowed down with his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. He said, that's good, right? Well, that's good. Yeah. But it's kind of too little too late, I'm afraid. I mean, the Bible says that there was no discussion. They didn't sit down. They didn't walk through things. They didn't talk through things. It was just a hug and a kiss. And that was it. You haven't seen your son in five years. Your son has murdered another brother of his. All this has gone on and after five years, you give him a hug and a kiss and a pat on the fanny and go, good to have you back, son. I don't think so. And as a result, the anger and the the the, the, the bitterness, the hatred that Absalom was feeling finally boiled over. That was it. That was the last straw into ugly reality. Look what he did. Verse uh, Chapter 15. And in the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and 50 men to run ahead of him. And he would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Now, friends, in ancient Israel, there were no billboards, no radio ads, no TV spots. If you were an aspiring politician, there were only two ways, two ways that you could campaign. The first way is that you hired runners. You hired heralds who would run in front of you everywhere you went and shout out wonderful things about you. Uh, Here comes Absalom. He's for tax cuts. He's for better education. Absalom feels your pain. (laughs) Absalom, Absalom, he's our man. If he can't do it, nobody can. Absalom hired 50 of these guys to run around in front of him. And the other th- way you campaigned is you went, uh, you went to the city gate. And that's where you pressed the flesh and that's where you kissed the babies. Because the city gate in those days was kind of a combination of city hall and the town mall all rolled into one. And so the Bible says every day Absalom began going to the city gate. And look what he did there. The middle of verse 2. And whenever anybody would come with a complaint, he would say to them, well, verse 3... He would say, look, your claims are valid and proper, but there's no representative of the king here to hear you. If only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who had a complaint or a case could come to me, and I would see to it that they get justice. And whenever anyone would approach him and would bow down and kiss him as the king's son, he would go, oh, no, 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 no. And he would humble himself and bow down before them. And look what it says at the end of verse 6. And by doing this... He stole the hearts of the men of Israel away from his dad. From his dad. And at the end of four years of doing this, Absalom, verse 10, sent secret messengers throughout all the kingdom and said, When you hear that the trumpet has been blown for me in the city of Hebron, I want everybody to rise up and shout out, Absalom's now the king! Absalom's now the king! You say, well, Lon, wait a minute. Do I understand this right? This kid's going out and deliberately, intentionally undermining his father's kingdom, trying to take over his dad's kingdom? Exactly right. say, that's disgusting. Well, you're exactly right. To see a son betray and sell his dad out like this, if you're here and you're a father, can you imagine having one of your children do this to you? You say, well, Lon... What drives a son or a daughter? What drives someone to do this to their very own father? One word. Bitterness. Bitterness. Absalom was a man consumed by bitterness. And friends, when bitterness gets in the driver's seat of a person's life, that person becomes capable of doing anything. No matter how heinous or awful it might sound, when bitterness takes over our life, we can do anything. Now, that's the end of the passage for today, but it leads us to ask a really important question. You know this question, but you haven't done it for a while. So everybody get ready. Ready? Here we go. One, two, three. No. Ah, felt good, didn't it? It's like family again. This is wonderful. Okay, Lon, so what? Absalom's bitter. He's trying to overthrow his dad. That didn't have a thing to do with me, so what? Well, I think it has a lot to do with you and me, because people haven't changed all that much since the days of David and Absalom. Hey, I cut an article out of the paper. It's called Getting Blasted. It's a real article. I'm not lying to you. And this is what the article says. It says, in Japan, they're brewing a new kind of beer in which some of the carbon dioxide is replaced by hydrogen gas. The big appeal of this beer seems to be that it allows guzzlers to sing with an unusually high-pitched voice like Donald Duck. But what goes over even better... This is a real article, I'm not lying to you. What goes over even real better is a spectacular fireworks display created by lighting one's hydrogenated breath. This has led to a rather dangerous form of entertainment in Japan in which participants buy to see who can breathe the most fire. According to the Associated Press, listen to this, Toshira Otama mastered this by downing 15 beers and belching huge amounts of hydrogen gas. He was reportedly able to catapult (laughs) balls of fire completely across the bar, impressing everyone but the bouncer. The bouncer deemed Otama's dragon act to be too dangerous after Otama singed the hair and eyebrows off a fellow patron. Listen, listen, the bouncer attempted to curb the activity and in the scuffle that followed, Otama swallowed a cigarette by mistake and ignited the hydrogen gas. He suffered burns to his esophagus, his larynx, and all his sinuses. And since his vocal cords were also charred, Otama was unavailable for comments. <laughs> is that incredible? You say, that's funny now. What, what are you talking about? Well, when I read the article, I thought, you know what? A person full of bitterness is like a person full of hydrogen gas, ready to go off at any minute. It's true. It's true. And when they go off, you know what? It's ugly. And and it's way out of proportion. They go off in crazy, dumb ways, like Absalom did. Friends, Absalom was a man where the root of bitterness had sprung up. And God says in the Bible, See to it that no root of bitterness spring up in any of you, for whenever it does, many are damaged by its poison. And as we're going to see over the next couple of weeks, The poison that had sprung up in Absalom through this bitterness is going to do exactly what God says. It's going to damage all kinds of people. Not just Absalom, not just David, but hundreds and hundreds of innocent people are going to lose their lives because of this bitter streak. And you know what? This is not a problem just for the ancient Near East. It's a problem in our modern world. We have bitter students who walk into high schools and start blowing away fellow students. We have bitter employees who walk into their place of employment and blow their boss and co-workers away. We have bitter men and women who walk into Jewish daycare centers and start shooting little kids. I mean, friends, bitterness and anger and rage and hatred, these things exist in our modern world and people go off like hydrogen gas in the world today. Now that leads me to ask two questions as we close today. The first one is this. What are the forces that produce this kind of bitterness in people? Remember I said earlier, bitterness doesn't grow in a vacuum. So how did Absalom get to be bitter like this? And if you're on the verge of being bitter, how would you get to be the way you are? Well, there were four things David did that produced bitterness. David did all four of them wrong. Here's what they are. Number one, injustice. For two years, David did nothing to deal with his son who had raped his daughter. Now, that was both, both unjust and unfair. And you look around, you will find that almost without exception, bitterness always begins with someone feeling like something unjust, unfair has been done, something uh, partial has been done, that the rules have not been applied equally to everybody. That's where it always starts. Number two, there was poor communication. Did David ever call Absalom in and ask him how he was feeling about this crime done to his sister? No. No. Did he ever call Absalom in and give Absalom a chance to share his concerns? Give Absalom a chance to ask him, Hey, Dad, why aren't you taking any action here? Did he ever call Absalom in and ask Absalom just to talk to him a little bit so he could at least give Absalom the feeling that his dad was even interested in what he was thinking? No. This is why God tells us in the Bible, if you know that someone has something against you, You go be reconciled to that person. You go talk about it. You go open the pathways of communication. Because it's very hard, if not impossible, for bitterness to happen when people are talking and listening to one another from the heart. It's almost impossible. But David didn't do this. He stiff-armed Absalom. Third, there was real insensitivity shown. Because David wasn't communicating with his son Absalom, David was clueless about how, how Absalom was feeling. And because he didn't understand how he was feeling, he was incredibly insensitive. I'm sure there were days that he was walking down the palace, just, just happy as a lark, and here comes Absalom the other way, and he's like, Hi, son, how are you? Beautiful day. God bless you. And Absalom walks by. Now he's madder. Because, because his dad doesn't understand the fury that he's feeling about his brother. The dad doesn't understand the sense of violation that he's feeling for his sister. The dad doesn't understand the hurt that's going on inside of him. And now he's even madder, because the man's completely insensitive. Fourth and finally, not only did David show injustice and poor communication and insensitivity, but even five years later, when Absalom and David finally met again, I still believe this could have been fixed. I still believe they could have repaired that relationship if David had owned his stuff. You understand what I'm saying? If David had owned his stuff, if David had gotten down on his face before his son and said, you know, Absalom, I need to ask you to forgive me. This was my fault. I should have taken action against your brother. I didn't. I was partially responsible for driving you to murder your brother. I didn't communicate with you. I was insensitive to you. I should never have stiff-armed you. This is my fault. Would you please forgive me? Now, if David had done that, I believe they still could have fixed this. But David, what did he do? Hugged him, kissed him, patted him on the rump, said, God bless you. And I think that was the last straw as far as Absalom was concerned. Because see, when somebody's hurt you, friends, when somebody's wronged you and they refuse to own it, well, now hurt turns to hatred. Now you're really mad. You say, well, Lon, okay, I understand that. You're right. But injustice, poor communication, insensitivity, people refusing to, to own their stuff. Hey, Lon, I've had all this happen to me. By a father, a mother, a stepfather, a stepmother, a brother, a sister, a boss, a teacher, a co-worker, a colleague. I know what this feels like. I've been there. I know what Absalom's dealing with. Lon, I understand the bacteria perfectly. What I need you to tell me about is where's the penicillin to kill it. I know what it's like to be feeling bitter. I know what it's like to have feelings of hatred. I know what it's like to be an Absalom. But Lon, tell me how to fix it love to got three suggestions for you number one be honest about the problem don't justify it away excuse it away don't soften it by giving it another name your bitterness don't say i have righteous indignation no you don't you're bitter i have justifiable anger no you don't you're bitter and, it, you know, you're putting a, a little bit of biblical sugar coating on it, all that does is work against you because the only way you and I are going to be willing to get down and take the steps we need to take to really fix this thing is we're going to have to be honest enough to call it what it is. It may be ugly, but you call it what it is. I'm bitter. Okay, good. It's good. Now we can work on this. You're bitter. Now we can deal with it. Step two, attack it with prayer. Attack it with prayer. You see, bitterness is not a conscious thing that we just decide in our conscious mind we're going to feel. What person do you know who gets up in the morning and says, You know what? Today's Wednesday. I think today I'm going to be bitter. Mm-hmm. I think I'm going to go out today and run people off the beltway, see if I can run them into those, you know, little New Jersey barricades there. Going to see if I can get right behind people and force them to go over speed bumps too quick and ruin the underside of their car. I'm just going to go out and be one nasty, mean person today. I'm bitter. It's Wednesday. Now, you ever met anybody who does that in your whole life? Of course not. Because we don't make up our mind to be bitter. It's not something we consciously do. Bitterness is a reaction. It's a reaction of our human nature to feeling used or to feeling mistreated or to feeling hurt. And it happens way down at a level, friends, that you don't have any conscious control over at all. Bitterness is not just like a bad habit, like burping at the table, that some, some amount of BF Skinner behavior modification is going to fix. That's not what this is. This is something that happens at a level in you and me where no doctor, no therapist, no scalpel, no drug can get to and fix it, and you can't even get to it and fix it. This is why we need to bring the power of God to bear on this. It's why we need to attack it with prayer. Because God can reach down inside of us and fix things and pull the fangs on things that you and I and nobody else in the world can get to. May I say that if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, that what you get when you get a connectedness with Jesus Christ is you don't just get eternal life, you don't just get heaven, you also get... The power of God operating in your life that can reach down inside you and fix things that you can't fix yourself. Trust me, I know. At 21 years old, I was a young man consumed with bitterness against my mother, against my father, against my people in high school. And Jesus Christ, when I came into personal relationship with Him, reached down inside there where I couldn't even get to and fixed all that. And we all need that kind of power operating in our lives, friends. I'm here to tell you the only place you get it is in a personal connectedness with Jesus Christ. Something to think about. Third and final step is not only do we need to be honest about the problem and attack it with prayer, but third and finally, we need to keep our focus on the promise of God. You say, what promise is that? The promise in Romans 8:28 that says God causes all things to work together for good to those that love him. Now, would you notice in that promise God doesn't say all things are good? No, he doesn't say that cuz all things aren't good. The rape that took place against Absalom's sister was not good. Okay? But what God promises is that he will take the good, the bad, and the ugly and he will work them all together so that by the time he's done baking that cake, it's going to be beneficial and good for you. He said, well, now how in the world does God do something like that? Friend, I don't know. And you know what? I don't need to know. I'm not God. All I need to know is that I've got a God who's big enough that if he says he's going to do it, he can do it. That's what I need to know. And you know, God often uses unfair things to accomplish good purposes in our life. Have you ever realized that? Some of the best things that happen in people's lives start with unfair things and unjust things that God then flips. Hey, take Joseph. Remember him? Sold into slavery by his brothers, right? Unfairly accused by Potiphar's wife, thrown into jail as an innocent man. Thirteen years the man spent in jail. All of his twenties, he's in jail as an innocent man. Was that fair? Of course it wasn't fair. But did God use it? Sure He did. Joseph never would have been prime minister of all of Egypt if he hadn't have been in that jail. God knew what he was doing. And God used the unfair things that happened to him to produce a great end. How about um, Ruth? You remember Ruth? She, Her husband died. She was a young widow. Was that fair? Of course not. But if it hadn't have been for that, she wouldn't have gone back to Israel. If she hadn't gone back to Israel, she wouldn't have met Boaz. And Boaz was a hottie, that's all i got to tell you. And she married Boaz and became the great-grandmother of King David, whom we're studying, and the great-great-great-great-grandmother of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Did God take something unfair and turn it into something good in that woman's life? Yes, He did. And how about the Lord Jesus Himself, betrayed by one of His closest colleagues, deserted by all of His friends, booed by the crowd He had tried to help so often, crucified by the Romans for cheap political purposes. All that fair? Uh Uh-uh. But if that hadn't happened, He would never have died on the cross and you and I wouldn't have forgiveness of sins. We wouldn't be going to heaven and have the power of God operating in our lives today. Did God use unfair things for good? Sure He did. And friends, I'm not saying to you what people did to you was right. It wasn't. I'm not saying what people did to you was okay. It's not okay. What I'm saying to you is that the penicillin here, what I'm saying to you is that the secret to overcoming letting those things make you bitter is to see God as bigger than the unrighteousness of all those people. To have a high view of God and a high view of the power of God. And a high view of the promise of God that if God says to you He will take that unfairness and He will take that unrighteousness and He will take that injustice and He will turn it into good in your life. What I'm saying is if you'll believe God, you can rise above that. And you don't have to become bitter. You say, well, Lon, wait a minute. I hear what you're saying. But you see, you just don't get it. I mean, all these people you mention in the Bible, the Lord Jesus and Ruth and Joseph, it's easy for you to say it about them. Their stuff is all settled. It's all neat and clean in a little box with a little ribbon on the top. It's all perfectly worked out. Mine isn't like that. I'm in a mess. I'm hurting. I've got pain in my life. I'm confused. I don't understand why God is letting it happen to me, what He's letting happen to me. It seems unfair. It seems unjust. Mine's not neat and clean, Lon. Well, friends, could I say to you, that there was a time in Joseph's life, there was a time in Ruth's life, there was a time in the Lord Jesus' life when their situation wasn't neat and clean either. And what made them the man and women of God that they were, is that when they were confused, when they didn't understand, when things weren't neat and clean, what they did is they said, we are going to make a decision to believe God. We're going to make a decision to rise above all this muck and we're going to believe and trust God. And that's what God wants you to do. That's what God wants you to do. Friends, I can't explain to you what's happening in your life. Shoot, I don't even understand what's happening in my own life. And I've got some things that I don't understand why God's doing them to me either. But I've made a decision that I'm going to live like Ruth. I've made a decision. I'm going to live like Joseph. I'm going to believe God's promise even though I don't see how it's going to happen yet. And by the help of the Spirit of God in my life, I'm going to rise above this and I'm not going to become a bitter man. Now, that's what God wants from you. And if you make up your mind you're going to do it, God will help you do it. The strength to do it will be there once you and I make the decision that's how we're going to live. Maybe you're going through some really tough times. Maybe somebody really stuck it to you. I'm here to tell you God's bigger. God's bigger. Maybe something really unjust and really unfair has happened to you. I'm here to tell you God's bigger. Maybe you feel kicked around like an old dog and you don't understand why people are treating you like this. I'm here to tell you God's bigger. And if you'll trust Him, He will cause all things to work together for good for you. He did it for Joseph. He did it for Ruth. He's done it for thousands of other people and He's not going to break His promise to you. So you trust Him. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I want to give you just a moment to do business with God if you need to. If you've been struggling with anger and bitterness and hatred because of unfair, unjust things that have happened to you, the way people have treated you, I want to challenge you right now to let it go. Just turn loose of it. Let it go. And with God's help, rise above all that. And say, Lord, I'm just going to trust you. That you're bigger. That you're going to turn it into good. Now, if you want to make that decision, why don't you take these quiet moments and you do business with God. Lord Jesus, thanks for talking to us today about stuff that's right down where we live. And you know, Lord, there are many of us sitting here today who've been hurt deeply and who are still carrying the bitterness and the anger about that. We're prisoners. God, my prayer is that You would liberate us today. Help us turn loose of it. And with Your help, rise above it and say, My God's bigger. And I'm going to trust Him that He'll work this together for good. There's nothing to get bitter about because it's all part of God's plan. And so, Lord, I pray that you would send lots of people out here this morning free. They might have come in in prison to their bitterness and their anger, but I pray you'd send them out free. And thanks for this wonderful promise. Thanks for being a God of such power that you can take the nastiest, most awful stuff people do to one another and somehow you can turn it into good. We love you for being that way, Lord. Encourage us to rise up and trust you, I pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.